Hey there, I'm Sarah K. Hoffman, a holistic health coach and chief gutsy of a gutsygirl.com. I went from bloated, gassy, and infertile to living my best life with a strong microbiome and a very full house. On this show, no topic is too stinky to discuss and everything can be broken down into practical, digestible takeaways. So grab a cup of bone broth, veggie broth, or a soothing golden latte if you prefer, and come along as I show you how the number two might just be your new number one. Hello, thank you for joining me for episode 32 of the A Gutsy Girl podcast. My name is Sarah K. Hoffman, aka A Gutsy Girl, and I am your host for this show. I'm pretty sure I mention it often, but it's worth mentioning again. I love podcasting because it allows me the time to sit down with gut health experts I meet online and really dig into their expertise. I have been following Dr. Andrew Hubbard for quite some time on Instagram. He is filled with information and knowledge, so I reached out to see if he wanted to come on the show. We decided to record an episode around functional dyspepsia, otherwise known as FD, because it's not as sexy as IBS or IBD. Yet many people have it knowingly, or as you'll hear in my conversation with Dr. Hubbard today, unknowingly. And what I loved about recording with him is that I learned about something new in detail that I think is also going to be new and eye-opening for you as well. Add this to the list of maybe it's this, haha. Anyways, here is a little more on Dr. Andrew Hubbard. Dr. Andrew is a Canadian-based naturopathic doctor practicing in Ontario. He strongly believes in a gut-centered approach to health and healing. He has a clinical focus in treating SIBO, acid reflux, IBS, and IBD. Patients seek him out to help them get relief from their chronic digestive complaints like indigestion, stomach pain, gas, bloating, diarrhea, and constipation. So with that, let's welcome Dr. Andrew to the show. Welcome to the show, Dr. Andrew. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited to be here. It is a pleasure to have you. And I know that this show is going to be super informative and helpful for everyone out there listening. So if we could just get going right away, I would love if you could tell the audience a little bit more about yourself, who you are, what you do, and anything else you'd like to share. So I am a naturopathic doctor, and I focus specifically on treating gut disorders. I have a private practice in Guelph, Ontario, which is located about an hour west of Toronto. I like to think of myself as a bit of a digestive detective. I just really enjoy helping people troubleshoot their chronic digestive concerns and uncover the reasons why people are not feeling their best and ultimately to get them to feel their best. I love that. I used to call myself, I still do sometimes, a detective as well. It oftentimes and so much feels like detective work because there's layers to be uncovered and it can feel really exhausting. So how long have you been practicing? So I've been practicing just over three years really, really enjoying what I'm doing. It is definitely hard work, but it's much needed work for the large population of people out there who are suffering. It seems like with each year that goes by, the topic of gut health just keeps growing and growing and growing. And that's not a coincidence. It's because I think that 
we are having more and more problems with different gut health issues. So we hear the words IBS and IBD so much in the gut health community, but what is functional dyspepsia and is it common? We almost hear too much about IBS, I think, and uh, hopefully today we can change the conversation a little bit and get a little bit more awareness about functional dyspepsia. For those who don't know what a functional disorder is, it just means that it's not due to any structural damage in the gut, like what we might see in Crohn's disease, peptic ulcer disease, things like that. Functional dyspepsia is a chronic digestive disorder mostly triggered by eating. And so the symptoms occur shortly after eating and mainly tend to affect the stomach and the upper small intestine in probably what most people would describe as general indigestion. It's super common. You might be surprised to know that it's got about the same prevalence as IBS. So it affects anywhere between 15 to 20% of populations. So that's not a small chunk of people. Yeah. So with that, I mean, that's such an interesting stat. How come then we don't really hear about it? You know what? I don't have a good answer for that. I think it's often underdiagnosed and a lot of the studies often combine functional digestive disorders. Like they may just kind of throw in IBS with functional dyspepsia. But yeah, it is surprising to hear that so many people are affected by this specific condition. Obviously, people are going to hear that right now. And the first thing that they're going to do is, well, they're going to finish listening to this episode, of course, but then they're going to go to Dr. Google and they're going to look up functional dyspepsia. And when you go and do that, you also come upon dyspepsia. So what is the difference between dyspepsia and functional dyspepsia? So dyspepsia is a general term to indicate any sort of discomfort or abdominal pain in the upper mid-abdomen. And it can have a number of causes from gastritis to peptic ulcer disease to even scary things like stomach cancer, right? So with functional dyspepsia, again, it's more of, so those things have been already ruled out and you're still having kind of the classic symptoms of functional dyspepsia, then it's determined, okay, then this is what you have, right? And so there are kind of four classic symptoms involved. The first one is early satiety or early fullness. So this is where individuals are unable to finish their meals or they become full very soon, even after smaller meals. The second symptom, which often goes hand in hand with early satiety or early fullness is bloating. It occurs almost immediately after eating. And then there are two other symptoms as well, both pain and burning in the area that we call the epigastrium. That's the technical term anyway, but basically it's located above the belly button and below the breastbone. And then there are a couple other symptoms as well that may be part of the picture, like belching or nausea as well. That's a pretty persistent symptom in functional dyspepsia, and it's actually what leads a lot of the patients into my office. They just can't deal with chronic daily nausea. And then finally, I would say if someone is actually vomiting, this usually isn't consistent with functional dyspepsia. If I were to hear that, I would think, okay, I think maybe something else is going on there. So those are kind of the symptoms that you might 
experience with functional dyspepsia, and usually it's chronic, so you might experience this for three months or longer. So I wonder a lot of times is the pain and bloating, does that then kind of also lead into the nausea? Like they almost all kind of go hand in hand. I hear a lot of people say these symptoms and most of the time they're all at once. (laughs) Yeah, I do believe so. I think that pain can be a pretty potent trigger for nausea. I believe that the natural rhythm of the stomach, like if the stomach is not emptying on time or if it's emptying too fast, that can cause some nausea as well. But yeah, they often do go hand in hand. All right. So similar to IBS, where there may be different types like constipation versus diarrhea or mixed IBS patterns, are there different types of functional dyspepsia and what might those look like? Yeah. So for sure, there are two types basically. And They're classified according to their symptom pattern. So those top four symptoms that we just listed, those are those that make up the first two categories. So the first one is called postprandial distress syndrome, or we call it PDS. And this relates to the first two symptoms I described. So early satiety and the bloating. And postprandial just means after eating. Whereas the second type is called epigastric pain syndrome or EPS. And typically these individuals will experience that burning or that pain in that area called the epigastrium. Do you ever find that these different forms also play along or go hand in hand with other types of IBS or acid reflux or SIBO or anything like that? Or how does FD functional dyspepsia differ from IBS or other things? It's just really interesting when you say all of the symptoms because there are so many symptoms that are the same and very similar to other conditions. It's part of the fun of untangling all this digestive mess, right? But yeah, certainly a lot of these symptoms can sound like other conditions. And often individuals can have multiple functional digestive disorders. So they could have IBS as well. And they may have like acid reflux and they may have kind of SIBO confounding the picture and making things messy too. Is there any classic symptoms that make functional dyspepsia different from other ones or are they just all so similar, but diagnosis looks different and how you do that? Yeah, so I would say the the kind of main differences in differentiating functional dyspepsia from other functional digestive disorders have to do with the area where the symptoms are happening. If we compare functional dyspepsia to GERD or acid reflux, where the symptoms generally occur in the middle of the chest, specifically behind the breastbone, the classic sign or symptom of heartburn that may kind of extend up into the neck or throat. These individuals may also regurgitate food too. So food is coming back in, coming back up into the mouth. That's not a component of functional dyspepsia, but you can imagine that individuals go to their doctors and they're saying, hey doc, I'm getting heartburn after I eat. Sometimes even the doctors are confused by that and they may say like, okay, well, you know, here's an antacid and they kind of go on their way, right? But in functional dyspepsia, we know that the burning or the pain happens lower than where it's experienced in acid reflux. And then when we compare that to IBS, which tends to be experienced further down in the abdomen. So A lot of those symptoms are happening around the belly button, along the belt line. You know, the right lower quadrant is often a place where people are having symptoms as well, too. 
And then I'd say another key difference is this relationship to bowel habits. So often those with functional dyspepsia, they won't relate their symptoms to a change in their bowel habits necessarily. So for example, someone with IBS may experience abdominal pain and discomfort and then shortly thereafter, they may have to, you know, run to the washroom to have a bowel movement. Or the opposite scenario might be true where symptoms only start appearing once they start getting backed up and they're not going to the washroom regularly, like we see in IBS with constipation. So there's kind of this clear association with IBS and a change in bowel habits where we just don't see that with functional dyspepsia. And of course, we mentioned that Individuals can have all three, but typically there's a pretty strict pattern with functional dyspepsia and where the symptoms are and their relationship to bowel habits. And then obviously ruling out other causes as well for general dyspepsia. I think a lot of people who are listening to this right now are going to identify with a lot of things that you have said. One thing that I hear a lot is nothing is different with my bowel habits or my bowel movements. I'm going like normal. When it comes out, it's, you know, four to five on the Bristol stool scale, but yet something is really off with my stomach. And it's so the things you're saying really has me thinking because we don't talk about functional dyspepsia as much or ever. (laughs) That could be part of their missing puzzle piece. So if anyone is really identifying with the things that you're saying and sees themselves in this, what you're saying, what tests would they need for it a diagnosis. Are there tests? How could someone know for sure if this is what's going on? So like with IBS, functional dyspepsia is more of a diagnosis of exclusion. So we do need to rule out some of the scary stuff like gastritis, ulcers, and celiac disease, even cancer. And I would say this is probably most effectively done through an upper endoscopy where they stick a camera down your throat and take a look at the tissue lining in the stomach and the small intestine, and they do biopsies there. So that's probably the best way to rule out other causes. And then with a clinician who kind of is familiar with the diagnostic criteria, that's someone who can promptly give an accurate diagnosis and start on treatment. The other thing I might consider is something called a gastric emptying test. And what this test for is a known motility disorder called gastroparesis. And again, the symptoms can be very, very similar to functional dyspepsia and and perhaps a little bit more severe in gastroparesis, but that may involve also vomiting as well. So that's a more defined motor disorder of the stomach that I think would be helpful to rule out if if you're unsure, because that can provide some different treatment options as well. Because also you had mentioned that vomiting is not really part of this. That would be pretty extreme, correct? It's more common with gastroparesis, right? So if the stomach muscles aren't working properly, if it can't go down, it's got to go somewhere, right? So often those patients will have vomiting. When it comes to functional dyspepsia, what are some of the underlying causes? Is it something that you just have? Is it something you get? Is it that you already are predisposed to getting it because of another factor? Or what are some of the causes for it? I would say the most common cause I see it is infection. So that could be like viral. So you've gotten a stomach bug or something like that. It could be bacterial, like a bad bout of food poisoning or traveler's diarrhea. 
we just find that infections can leave a lasting impact on the nerves and on the immune cells and on the normal movement or what we call motility in the gut. Those are pretty common causes. So this picture of like, we hear about post-infectious IBS, well, that kind of same process can play out in functional dyspepsia, where it's more the stomach and the upper small intestine that are affected. You know, it could also be related to H. pylori infection too, but it's kind of less clear whether treating H. pylori actually improves the symptoms of functional dyspepsia. Other causes would include things like trauma and stress. We know that those things can really hypersensitize the nerves in the gut and really make symptoms like pain, bloating, and fullness just feel a lot worse than what's actually happening. And this is something that we call visceral hypersensitivity. I'll hear these individuals say things like, even drinking a glass of water makes me extremely bloated. That's kind of the classic hypersensitivity picture. And it can also impact the stomach's ability to stretch or what we call accommodate. And so when the stomach can't fully accommodate or stretch, as it normally would when you're eating a meal, then it creates the sensation that you're full or have really overeaten, even with smaller meals. It's important to know that a lot of functional dyspepsia sufferers, like in IBS, will often struggle with anxiety and low moods as well. So there does seem to be a big mental health component. And then finally, I'd say probably for some individuals also SIBO or small intestinal bacterial overgrowth can be an underlying cause as well. Yeah, that's the actual next question I was going to ask you is because a lot of the symptoms are very similar to those of SIBO. And then you also had mentioned the motility component, which is part of SIBO as well. So do you find it's common for people to have both SIBO and functional dyspepsia or can one lead to another or are there any clear differences that one would say, okay, you're maybe more towards functional dyspepsia than having the small intestinal overgrowth? That's kind of a difficult thing to tease out sometimes in practice. In terms of the literature and what the literature says about the prevalence it seems to be about 30% of those with functional dyspepsia will test positive for SIBO on a breath test. I'd probably look at more symptoms of bloating and flatulence as well if there is maybe a component of underweight or malnourishment too. I might look a little bit closer at SIBO as well. But yeah, it can be really tough to tease out, you know, is this SIBO, is this functional dyspepsia? Do they have SIBO? And it's really kind of like background noise and it relates to the underlying issues that present with functional dyspepsia, like motility issues. So it's difficult work to peel those two apart for sure. I had SIBO relapse four times from it. It was a very long journey to heal for good and it was painful. And when I say painful, I had that burning, kind of like punching feeling. And so it just has me wondering, it's neither here nor there now because I've been 100% functioning since 2018. But at the time, it was absolutely miserable. And that's what I was diagnosed with was SIBO. No one ever mentioned functional dyspepsia. So it just has me wondering and thinking about it. So to that end, though, what are some of the common medical and natural treatment options out there for functional dyspepsia? I'm wondering if any of them do overlap with other SIBO, IBS, anything else. Yeah, I think that there are some really great natural treatment options out there. 
Specifically, there are a number of herbs that have been shown to improve symptoms of functional dyspepsia. Personally, I like using a combination of peppermint and caraway. And of course, peppermint is often used in the treatment of IBS as well and can be quite effective for pain relief. These two herbs have been studied in combination and and can help really with a lot of those symptoms. There's another herbal formulation that I like. It's commercially available. It's a nine herb combo. And in my experience, works really well for bloating and fullness specifically. I'd say a little bit hit or miss with the pain or burning. But certainly if someone's experiencing that early fullness and just really uncomfortable bloating, that's one that I've used with some success. More recently, there's been some research on using soil-based probiotics. This was published on Medscape not too long ago. So that's kind of a big deal that they're considering including soil-based probiotics to treat this condition. So I think that's kind of neat too. And then um, I would say it's always important to add in some strategies that kind of improve that gut-brain communication. So one of the therapies that I've been using and it's pretty exciting avenue for treatment. It's called gut-directed hypnotherapy. And I've had some patients do remarkably well with this, including a few with really treatment-resistant bloating, which I know can be one of the toughest symptoms for people to resolve. And it's great because unlike having to go to a therapist's office and maybe do weekly sessions, there are at-home programs that are available and they seem to be pretty comparable in terms of effectiveness. And I feel like they're pretty cost affordable as well. From more of a conventional standpoint, antacid medications like proton pump inhibitors are kind of the go-to when you go see your doctors for these concerns. I don't love these medications, especially if used over the long term and not usually as the starting point. But you know, for the moderate to severe cases that just aren't responding to seemingly anything, that can be kind of a good band-aid solution while we're working on the underlying causes. I'm interested and very curious about gut-directed hypnotherapy. Is that a service that you provide in your office? Is it something that like a specially trained therapist does? Is it all talk therapy? It sounds to me like hypnosis, but I don't think that's what it is, or maybe it is. I'm not sure. I'm curious. Yeah, we have kind of this uh, attachment to what we think hypnosis looks like. But um, no, this is something that patients can do using an app. What it basically is, is it's like mindfulness meditation, but it's focused on the gut. So often you'll be walked through a series of exercises. So you just put your headphones in and you kind of focus on the different gut sensations that you're having. And there's different prompts there getting you to check in with how you're feeling. And basically, this is done on a daily basis, usually over a longer period of time. So I usually tell patients, it's like going to the gym, right? You're not going to work out twice and then just put on a bunch of muscle and get super lean. Like it doesn't work that way, right? You have to put in the work and, and do it consistently. And what we've seen in the research is that usually the benefits kick in around four to six weeks. A lot of the studies are six to 12 weeks. So you really do have to stick with it. But for those who do and, and do it consistently, it can be a game changer. I did my own version of that. I believe in that whole 
mindset, really. I actually just recorded a a whole podcast episode all about it. It's something that I think is so overlooked in this whole healing journey is the mindset part of it. 100%. And I really, really love that you mentioned that. It's fascinating to me. I want to look into it a little bit more. And I think something else that you mentioned in that is how you have to look at it as it's not a quick fix overnight. And that's something that I think is so fascinating about gut healing is that people want that quick fix, like it's going to happen tomorrow. But it took usually for most people years to get sick like they are. And any of the quick fixes is never sustainable and they're never long term. The more that people really can embrace that whole six to 12 week journey and really immersing themselves in all things, you know, the treatments and the mindset and the diet, all the things, the, you know, quote unquote, faster they heal. So I love that you included that because I appreciate it when doctors can say that because it's one thing coming from random people, but it's another when your doctor says, because barely any doctors will say it like you did, is how important it really is. And I feel like some people are a little bit resistant to it at first. And they may kind of be taken aback, like, you know, what are you saying? This is all in my head. And it's like, no, no, I'm not saying this is all in your head. But we know that the gut-brain axis, the gut-brain communication is so critical in these disorders. We'd be foolish not to look at that avenue, for sure. So speaking of diet, what do you think people should know about diet and functional dyspepsia? Is there any correlation between what we're eating and functional dyspepsia? I would say kind of from a specific food perspective, often those who are suffering will have poor tolerance to fatty and greasy foods, spicy foods, alcohol, processed foods. These are all things that for different reasons, like fatty foods slow down motility, right? So those aren't going to be helpful if your motility is already sluggish, specifically in the stomach. And then spicy foods can trigger a lot of the nerves in the gut, especially if they're a little sensitive to begin with. And then we know the impacts of alcohol on things like leaky gut and just gut damage overall. So those are some of kind of the common triggers. Although I do think that, and I'm a big fan of intermittent fasting and the number of health benefits associated with that, individuals with functional dyspepsia may want to be a little bit cautious about this strategy. And I'll tell you why. They will often skip meals because they've kind of figured along the way that their symptoms are food related. So if they remove that part of the picture, then their symptoms get better. So I think the problem with this strategy and because of their digestive disorder, their gut hormones, which control things like hunger and satiety, are often out of whack to begin with in the first place. So this can create big swings in their appetite and kind of setting up this scenario where they're starving, so they overeat. Well, we know they don't have to overeat to feel crappy in the first place, but then they feel extra crappy when overindulging. It kind of becomes a bit of this vicious cycle. So I generally support eating smaller, more frequent meals as opposed to skipping meals altogether, at least in the beginning. And then fasting, I think, can be a better strategy once someone is more in the maintenance phase if it's aligning with their goals. And I would say also, too, that there has been a few trials on the FODMAP diet as well, the low FODMAP diet. I may consider this in someone who either also has IBS or SIBO or someone who's experiencing significant flatulence due to 
dietary components. There's also some correlation with eating gluten as well. But a lot of the times people arrive in my office and they're already doing those things, right? So I'm not usually having to take more foods out of people's diets. If someone was feeling these symptoms, are there any foods that you think are soothing that can be consumed and not worsen any symptoms? That can be difficult. You know, everyone's just so different. You know, they talk about, you know, like a low residue diet. I don't love it because the low residue diet isn't very nutritious, but I will say that it doesn't seem to aggravate individuals with functional dyspepsia. And so if you're not familiar with low residue, you know, it's eating all the stuff we probably wouldn't recommend for most other people from a digestive perspective. So things like crackers and breads and things like that, like white bread, which I feel weird saying right now, but um, it can be soothing in the short term. I would say also kiwis. So kiwi fruits is something that I recommend quite often. I find they can be helpful for some for some, the acidity is a little bit too much. So it's more about working on the underlying causes than necessarily taking away or restricting further foods in their diet. Yeah, the low residue is one of those that you hesitate to say, but it's really just for that flare, like the immediate. It's nothing. It's long-term. So Dr. Andrew, I'm wondering, what is something in general about gut health or gut healing that you think people get wrong? I would say an overemphasis being placed on the diet. And I know that may sound a bit counterintuitive in a lot of ways, but for a lot of the patients I see, many are already on restrictive diets, you know, whether it's low FODMAP, SIBO diets. Listen, diet is no doubt super important, but the gut is complex. Like we've got an entire nervous system devoted to managing the ins and outs of gut function. And 70% of our immune system is in there. And those immune cells are having conversations with our microbes. So if you're just focusing on diet, you're going to be missing a big part of what's going on to help you heal. So if you're on a restrictive diet already and it's not working or only partially working, there's likely more work to do and other things to be explored. And I think diet is a big thing people really get stuck on. When it's not working, it's easy to say, well, what else can I cut out rather than maybe I'm missing something else here? Yep. I say it all the time. You can't diet harder. I learned that the hard way because at some point you're down to eating air and broth and that's it and you're still not better. And if you can't connect those dots, here's us connecting them today for you. It's so hard though because food is the one thing that of all the other factors, it's pretty easy to control, especially I find a lot of women with any kind of gut issue, they're very type A. The food is something that is so easy to be able to control. But unfortunately, it's just usually not the thing that is going to be the end all be all. I have this um, thing on this on my website. It's tips for starting your gut healing journey, just based on all the things I learned in my decade long getting better. And one of them is people will tell you, you can eat this, you can't eat that, do this because it's low FODMAP, but then make sure you are careful of that FODMAP because it might have an extra gram of sugar, blah, 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 blah. And then someone will still literally ask, but can I eat the kale? And you're like, you missed the entire point of the whole thing. It never in the end comes down to that ever. Of course it matters, but it's never that one thing. And some of those 
kind of hyper-focused attitudes may actually be hurting these people too when it comes to their digestive health. So yeah, I see that all the time. It's a tough cycle to get out of. Okay. Dr. Andrew, at the end of my interviews, I always ask guests for their three convictions around gut health and gut healing. For reference, mine are heal your gut, heal your life. Everything is beautiful in its time and no one will ever advocate for your health in the ways you can show up and glow up for you. So I would love to know what your convictions around gut health and gut healing are. Those are great. Uh, Mine won't be too different as well. So first, I think, and this is more from a practitioner standpoint, but every gut needs something different to heal. You know, what I mean by that is some do need to make a change in their diet. We've talked about diet is not necessarily the end all be all, but for some, that's a big issue. Some need a change in their structure or their posture. You know, I see that a lot with heartburn and functional dyspepsia as well. And some need a change in their relationship to stress and even their relationship to food. So people are just so different and they need different things to heal. So don't get focused on any one particular element specifically. I'd say secondly, don't underestimate the foundations of gut health. And what I mean by that is things like regular movement every day, making sure that you're sleeping well, making sure that you're breathing well too. I will often recommend breathing techniques for patients with different digestive disorders and I find them to be helpful. You know, things like drinking enough water, you would be surprised how many people get better just like chewing their food properly or eating in a more calm state. So don't underestimate the foundations. It can be tempting to jump on the the next uh, expensive probiotic or get the expensive digestive testing. And that can be warranted in certain cases, but oftentimes just starting with the basics can really help someone. And then finally, I would say, if you're being told that everything is normal and it really it's not for you, then keep pushing for answers. If you can, find someone who is just as eager to help you navigate these issues as you are to solve them. And if your health team doesn't include someone like that, then add somebody in, somebody in who's willing to go the extra mile and really make sure the diagnosis is correct and put together a proper treatment plan for you. Those were so awesome. I think I can pull out all three and use them in some way, shape or form because they're so in line with my own journey and what happened and the things that I believe today. I love that you said that about the foundation. I always say that you can't build a house on sand. That's simple. It's just not easy for people because they're more than willing to spend whatever amount it is to get better, but they're not willing to just do the work for the free things because that's not really the easy route. So I really love that you said that. It's great. It's a neat paradox for sure. All right. Well, thank you for joining me today, Dr. Andrew. It has been a pleasure. And to you out there, thank you for joining another episode of the Agutsi Girl podcast. And I will see you again next time.